please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. And if you're, as you're able, if you would stand with me this morning as we read Acts chapter 3 together. And here we're continuing to see the witness of the church, the, the witness that uh, the foundations of the witness of the church. And we see that here as uh, Peter and, and John, by God's grace, display the, the power that the church has, the power that God has entrusted to the church. So we're going to begin here in verse 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter together. Feel free to sit down if, if you need to. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the, gate of the, at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You may be seated. 
And Father, we ask by your grace this morning to be strengthened in the power of your word. We pray that we would understand the, the power that you've given your church by your grace, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The church is going to be offensive at times. The church is going to be offensive at times because the message that we have been entrusted with, the gospel message, is an offensive message. I was reading something that someone wrote who had left Christianity because they, they found Christianity offensive. This is, this is what this person who's, who's left Christianity wrote. They said, I have my share of reservations, obviously, more than I can express in just this writing. But my, my greatest reservation, my greatest concern, is the teachings that suggest that Christianity is the sole true religion. I, I can deal with the exclusivity of Christianity. Every religion has a degree of exclusiveness. But to suggest that one out of the 4,200 religions in the world, that one of them holds all of the truth and the key to salvation, is not only arrogant, it's spiritually narcissistic. It is spiritually narcissistic to believe that a single religion is applicable for 7 billion people. It is spiritually narcissistic to believe it is your God-ordained responsibility to project your beliefs upon others in the hopes of conversion. And it is spiritually narcissistic to believe that you are a part of a group of like-minded individuals who holds the key to humanity's salvation. I don't believe, this person writes, I don't believe that is salvation. I believe that is teetering the lines of cultism. And as much as I want to believe that it's just a small minority of Christians, I know that's not true. I know the average Christian believes that anyone who is not a follower of Christ is doomed for an eternity in hell. And why wouldn't they? It's a core belief of Christianity. Now, how, how do we respond to that? On the one hand, it's not a problem that's unique to Christianity, the idea of exclusiveness. Once you have any opinion about the nature of reality, especially the nature of the, the spiritual reality, no matter what you call that, you're going to immediately be excluding billions of people with that belief. In other words, you're going to be saying billions of people are wrong no matter where you come down on the reality of God and, and who God is and his demands on us. That's, that's not a problem unique to Christianity, right? But, but certainly, I, I hope that as you hear what this person writes, there's, there's a degree of, of empathy, of, of understanding where they're coming from. It, it is a strong claim. We're, we're claiming to have the answer to the problem of sin. As Paul says, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. And as we, we think about how the gospel sounds to a person who doesn't believe the gospel, we, we understand how it sounds foolish. And certainly we could agree that it is an arrogant message if it's not true. In other words, if it's a, if it's a message that we came up with ourselves, like, okay, here's how we're going to deal with sin. We're going to have this, this religion, and only we get to go to heaven. Only we get to deal with sin, and it's only through this thing that we made up. Then, of course, that is the height of arrogance. But if this is the message from God himself, then this is the most powerful message that has ever existed, the most powerful message ever given to humanity. And of course, that is what you and I, those of us who are Christians, are convinced of. We believe that there is a God 
who is the creator of the universe, and that we have transgressed, we've disobeyed this, this holy and perfect God, and now we are, through our nature and through our decisions, we are his enemies. And we believe that God himself sent his, his son, fully God, fully man, who lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and now the only way we can get back into relationship with God is through faith in the Son of God who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And we believe that God has entrusted that message, that powerful message, the most powerful message that humanity has ever received. We believe that God has entrusted that powerful message to the church. The church, we believe, has power. And it's not an intrinsic power. It's not a power that we kind of created for ourselves or took upon ourselves. It's a power that God has entrusted to us. And here's kind of the main thing that I want us to think about together this morning. So kids, if you're writing notes, you can kind of write this idea down. The church has the power to proclaim the forgiveness of sins through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The church, the church has the power, indeed the, the responsibility, the power to proclaim forgiveness of sins through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And, and as we look at that idea, what we're going to do is we're going to first kind of talk about the first few verses of chapter 11. We're going to see a demonstration of God's power, and then we're going to see a promise of God's power in verses 12 through 26. We're going to see how these two halves of the chapter go together. I know we're kind of tackling a lot of text today, but let's, let's get into it here because these, these two halves of the chapter are so closely connected. So first of all, let's look at the demonstration of God's power and look at your Bibles with me if you would. We first of all see a, a need presented, right? You're there in verses 1 through 3, and it says that Peter and John are going into the temple. And remember in chapter 2, we saw that every day the the disciples are going into the temple. It's a, it's a daily thing that they're doing. And right now, it's about three in the afternoon, and they're walking into the temple. This was a time of prayer. This would have been a day in which a lot of people were traveling into the temple at this time. And they're at one of the gates, and we don't know exactly which gate this is, but perhaps it was the eastern gate between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. There's this, this man who sits there daily asking for alms. And this man, no one would doubt, is a man in need. From his birth, he's been unable to walk. His ankles, his feet apparently don't have the, the strength in order to hold him up. And so since his birth, he's been unable to walk. Since his, since his birth, it's been known that he will not be able to provide for himself physically. He won't be able to provide for himself financially. He has people who take it upon themselves to bring him every day and set him at this gate. And so day after day, he sits at this gate, and what does he say? He says, alms, alms, alms. Every time someone walks by, alms, alms, alms. Hundreds of times a day, he asks for alms. He is a man in need. But today, something radically different is about to happen to this man. It tells us they, they, they begin to, to uh, walk into the temple, and verse 4 says that 
Peter directed his gaze at him. And so what apparently happens is what happens in all sorts of culture when there are people in need. There's this guy at the gate. People walk by him all the time, alms, alms, alms. Sometimes people look at him, sometimes they don't. This guy, Peter and John are walking by, and he just kind of automatically begins to ask for alms, not really knowing if anything's going to happen. But Peter, as he walks by, it says that he, he looks at him. He doesn't walk by him and ignore him, but he directs his gaze towards him. And John does the same thing. They're both looking at him to grab his attention. And he begins to look at them as well, thinking that he's going to receive something from them. And Peter says, look, I, I don't have gold or silver, but, verse 6, look at this. What I do have, I give to you, and in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he takes him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his, his feet and his ankles are made strong. Now, Peter is going to later tell us that the reason that the man is healed is because he, he's healed by faith in the name of Jesus. Now, this is a little bit of speculation, but think about this. This man has been sitting at this gate every day, and what else has been taking place every day? Every day... The disciples, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we know there's over 3,000 of them at this point, they've been going to the temple proclaiming Christ. And so it's not unreasonable to assume that this man has some sort of awareness of this man Jesus and that there's a claim that he is the Christ. And that word Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, the word Christ there is a, a title of, of theological significance, that he is the, the Messiah, the one promised to the people of Israel. And so as Peter looks at him and he says, okay, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Messiah, this person, Jesus of Nazareth. So I'm, I'm connecting Jesus, this person you've heard us talking about with the Messiah, what you know about the promised deliverer of Israel. And, and that name of Jesus, that he's this person, rise up and walk. And so at that moment, what I believe is happening is this man is believing that Jesus is the Messiah and believing that Jesus has the power to heal him, and he's, he's believing that the name of Jesus is worth more than silver or gold. There's a need that he has, this physical need, and notice as we go through the story how the needs just keep getting deeper. He, he has a need for some finances, and so he's asking for money, but Peter and John address an even more profound need that he has a need for, for physical healing. In fact, it's a need that's so profound he wouldn't even dreamed of asking for it. But they meet that, and we see that a deeper need exists still. But, but first of all, look at verses 8 through 11 too. And look at the response to that need of his being met. It says that he, he leaps up and he begins to walk. And, and don't miss the significance of verse 8. It says he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, now, why is that so significant? It's significant because we know that a lame person could not enter the temple of God. Leviticus 21 tells us that a person who's, who's lame, who can't walk, can't enter into the temple of God. And so this man has been sitting on the outskirts of the temple. Remember, how long has he been lame? Since his, since his birth. So his entire life he's been excluded from the fellowship that exists within the temple, and now he's walking, he's leaping, he's praising God. He is with his own eyes for the first time seeing the temple. Isaiah 35 tells us this about the last days. In the last days, the lame man 
will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Those who are excluded are now included in the people of God and are able to rejoice and praise him and participate in fellowship. And in fact, he's been brought into a deeper relationship than even he knows yet in the story of Acts, but that's coming. And the people are all, the people are all in awe. They're astonished. And they, they gather into this area, and there's Peter and John, and they're, and they're just wondering what in the world has just happened here. That's, that's a demonstration of God's power. And it's really to point them to their own need. That brings us to the second thing I want us to talk about this morning. That's a promise of God's power. You see, what's going to happen now in in the rest of the verses of chapter 3 is that Peter is going to reveal to those who've gathered together who are astonished at this physical act of demonstration of God's power, he's going to reveal that these people are also lame. They're lame spiritually. In fact, they have a, a greater need And there's a promise of God's power that he can meet that need for them. So here's the need revealed. Look at verses 12 through 18. Peter says all the people coming toward him, and he addresses them. He says, look, look, men of Israel, look, guys, why are you wondering at this? Your your wonder, your amazement is misplaced. You're gathering around John and I as, as though we had some sort of power or piety in and of ourselves to be able to deal with this. But we didn't make him walk. Who did this? Now notice how he connects what he's about to say about Jesus with the things that they know about the God of Israel. Who did this? It was the God of Abraham, the God who made the Abrahamic covenant, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He glorified his servant Jesus. This is the God who did this. Now who is Jesus? Oh, he's the one whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Now, what did you do? Look at verses 14 and 15. Three things. You denied the Holy One Righteous One. Two, you embraced a murderer. Three, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And we're witnesses of this. This sounds very similar to like the sermon he preached in the last chapter, right? That message of, look, you're in sin, you're in trouble. This same Jesus healed this man by faith. What you've seen, what you've just witnessed is a picture of the salvation that God provides. By faith, Peter tells them, this lame man was healed. Jesus is the one who's granted this man perfect health. The next words Peter says, I think, are a great example of preaching truth with grace. He contrasts their ignorance with God's knowledge. He says, look, you were unaware. You you sinned in a way that is, it's incredible to consider what you've just done, and yet there's grace in your ignorance. This is what God said would happen. He said that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. So Peter doesn't absolve them from their sin, but he puts their sin in context and gives them hope. Now Peter's saying, look, the physical needs this man has are small compared to the spiritual problem you face. You've killed the Messiah. 
there's nothing worse that you could have done as a descendant in line for the promises. It should have been a heart-wrenching moment for the people as they heard this, right? I was reading Isaiah 13 earlier this week. Isaiah 13 talks about the day of the Lord. We've talked about this before, and sometimes you read these passages and you think, okay, it's okay, and maybe the people that Peter was talking to as well, they thought, okay, I'm, I'm fine thinking about God judging the wicked, and it's okay to think about God judging the wicked in some sort of abstract term until you realize, oh, wait, I'm one of the wicked. Listen to what Isaiah 13 says. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Listen to verse 7. All hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. Verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Friends, if you've not come to the point in your life where you've seen yourself as one of the wicked, you are still not in a right relationship with God. You've not recognized your need for a Savior. It's, it's a sobering realization. I'm currently teaching our, our third-born to, to drive. Do, he's doing a great job. Taught two other kids to drive and... Um, survived. You know, parents, you know what I'm talking about here, right? I've been thinking a lot about how to train the, the third born in, in, in driving based upon some, some things that I felt like I didn't do well uh, with the first two. And one of the things I do when I'm training the kids how to drive is we drive the Saturn. It's a, it's a stick, a, a manual. And so I've been trying to think about, okay, how do I help, how do I help really train and, and, and explain that a little bit better? And I kind of thought of some things to do in between number two and number three, number two born and number third born. I thought, okay, okay, here's, here's a way to explain kind of getting into first gear and how to understand the clutch. And I came home after my first time teaching uh, the, the son how to drive the stick, came home to the, the family and announced, guys, I got to admit, I'm pretty amazing at teaching kids how to drive now. I think I figured this thing out and really thought very highly of my, my own skills as an educator. So we, we start driving around a little bit in the Saturn. I'm feeling pretty confident. And we come to a, a stoplight as we're driving around, and we're at an incline. And five of you understand the significance of that now. 30 years ago, more of you would have understood the significance. Of that. And I, as we're at an incline, I realize I have forgotten, I totally forgot how to teach him how to start a, a, a stick at an incline going into first gear. And as I come to that realization, the light turns green, and a car comes barreling up behind us. And I feel myself start to float backwards, right? And I, I turn back, and I have that feel all, you know, you, you've had this feeling before where you look and you see your car coming closer and closer to another object. You see it as you, you maybe you're in the, driving the ice, and you slam on the brakes, and you kind of feel that, that the car just begin to, to, to move toward an object and realize there is, there's nothing I can do. I am hurling toward destruction. Now, by God's grace, grace, well, my son says by his skill. So God's grace combined with my son's quick thinking, he realized, oh, this is not going like it does in a normal situation and press the brakes. And we had some words with the other driver who was very concerned about how close we had come, understandably. 
and uh, we, we escaped disaster, right? But you know that feeling when disaster's on its way, there's, there's a sinking feeling in your heart as you recognize what's about to take place. And as we come to a passage like Isaiah 13, where we see what happens here as they describe the, the sin of the people, there should be that, that sinking feeling of, oh, I, I, have, I have put myself in this situation. There's nothing I can do. I need God's divine grace. It's why we have religion. The human heart understands our need for deliverance from sin. Every human heart. We may, we may not call it sin. And every human religion comes up with a, with a way to escape it. We need more knowledge. We need less knowledge. We need rebirth. We need enlightenment. We need to do good things. We need to, to have some sort of uh, external experience that will help us. The, the gospel tells us there's only one person who can help us, and that is Jesus. He can accomplish what we cannot accomplish. And here we see in verses 19 through 24 the hope that is promised. Look what Peter says for them to do. He says, repent. Verse 19, we've talked about this before. Repent, therefore, and turn back. That is two words using, being used to describe the same thing. It's repentance, turn away from sin. And notice he's talked about belief in the name of Jesus. These, these are two sides of the same coin. You can't have belief without repentance. You can't have repentance without belief. You have repentance and no belief, you don't have true repentance. You have belief and no repentance, you don't have true, true belief, true faith. So he's saying, believe in Jesus, just like this lame man believed in Jesus, this is what you need to do as well. You need to believe in Jesus and turn back. And listen, he says there's going to be three things that happen. If, if you repent and place your faith in Jesus, this is why this is why the message of the gospel is so powerful. Three things are going to happen. One, your sins are going to be blotted out. When I think of the word blotted, I, th I think about whenever I'm writing something and I write, write something I don't want to write, so I just kind of scratch it out and you kind of, then I keep writing and you, then you look at your note. It's very obvious that you had something there and you blot it out and it just looks terrible and you start writing again, right? you're writing a note to someone, say. But th that's not what the idea is here. The idea here is the idea of removal. In the first century in ancient cities, there would be registries of, of citizens of a city, and if a citizen committed some sort of crime and was condemned to death, their, their name would be blotted out. They'd be, they'd be removed from the registries. Like, they no longer were part of, of that city. They no longer acknowledged even their existence. For the believer, what happens is this, brothers and sisters, what happens is this, and this is the power of the gospel. When we believe in Jesus, we turn from our sins and we place our faith in Jesus, our, our sins are blotted out. I think about all my failures as a human being and my awareness of my own sin. I was watching a commercial this, this past week and saw a picture of a, a dad and his kids, and I saw the kids just look up at their dad with these, these faces of, of absolute adoration, and I thought, oh, man, I wish... I wish that I had not failed as a parent at times and my kids were completely unaware of, of any bad thing I'd ever done, right? I think about my failures as a, as a husband or my failures as a friend or my failures as, as just a, a pastor or as just a human being. I, I think about the failures and I, say, oh, I wish those things didn't exist and weren't part of my my, my existence. And here's what the good news of the gospel is. 
the good news of the gospel is in, in God's eyes, those things no longer exist. They're, they're blotted out. They're removed from me. I am, God looks at me and no longer sees those things. They no longer hinder our relationship. And the good news of the gospel goes even deeper than that. Not only does my sin get blotted out, take, taken from me and removed, but here's Christ's righteousness, and Christ's righteousness gets credited to me. So my, the bad things I've done are taken away, and it's like I've done all the good things that Jesus has done. And so in his perfect response in every human situation, it's like I have done that as well. I've been the, the perfect dad and husband and friend and pastor and human being. I get credit for all the things that God has done. That is the, the power of the gospel message. That's the power of the gospel message that has been entrusted to the church. Three things that happen. This is why the message is so powerful. One, your sins are blotted out. Two, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. They too can enter into fellowship with him. And then three, Christ will return. These three things are the result of repentance. Our sins are blotted out. We enter into fellowship with him. And we're able to await his return. The rest of the chapter continues to discuss their understanding of how they're connected to this. This is in obedience with what God has said that they're to do. You know, Moses told them to listen to the prophet. Jesus is that prophet. You're the sons of the prophets, Jesus, uh, Peter tells them, and of the covenant. You need to turn, every one of you, from your wickedness. A couple principles here as we think about how to respond to this power one, we need to understand that the church possesses tremendous power as it proclaims the message of forgiveness of sins. We have the power, not in and of ourselves, but we have the power to bring the spiritually dead to life. We're going to be talking more about the authority of the church in coming weeks, but, but just con consider this reality. We have this, this gospel message that we proclaim and call people to respond to. We need to realize the value of, of that message, the power of that message. And then the second thing I would encourage you with here in closing, each of us, as we think about the power of this gospel message, each of us must turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I read from Isaiah 35, <clears throat> verse 6 earlier about the, the lame who are able to leap and to praise God. Listen to that same Isaiah the same chapter in Isaiah, just a few verses later in verse 10, it says, and the ransom to the Lord, that's, that's you and me, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I don't know what each of you are struggling with this morning. But I'm confident that there are things that are heavy on your heart. There's the sorrow of, the, of sin. There's the sorrow of the consequences of sin. There's the, the sorrow of sin still unconfessed. There's the sorrow of other sin committed against you. And here's what the, the power of the gospel proclaims. The power of the gospel proclaims that Jesus has dealt with that sin finally and ultimately, and there's coming a day when all the consequences of sin will be consumed by the, by the Lord himself, and we will be able to completely experience everlasting joy.
Brothers and sisters, my desire for you is that you receive the gospel message as God's truth and experience everlasting joy. My desire is that those that we love with whom we are in relationship would experience the joy of everlasting love and joy. We, the church, have the power by God's grace to proclaim forgiveness of sins through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you for the reality that we can have our our hope and our trust and our confidence in your son Jesus and that we can have eternal life through him. We pray that you would help us by your grace to live in obedience to that. We pray that in the present as we we struggle with sorrows of various kinds, we would be be supported, buoyed by the, the reality of our eternal inheritance in you and your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.